Vanessa and Court for joining me on the first Psycho Semanticast in celebration of Pride Month. This was the winner of the group poll. How's everybody doing? Just good. Just dandy. Not awake, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Isn't it like later in the afternoon for you guys than it is for me? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost one thirty in our time zone. But she oh, lives yeah. in, in New York, the city that never sleeps. Oh, so that's why she's always tired. Makes sense. Yes. <laughs> no, since I was 
explaining before you got on the call is that I worked a seven-hour day on my day off yesterday, so <laughs> I'm, my brain's kind of fried. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah, yeah and I'm going to do probably work again today because I'm a masochist, but that's like another story entirely. <laughs> that's safe for another special month. <laughs> oh, no, that might go along with pride. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's always... So it's a leather contention in the parades. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that 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 uh, that would be definitely represented. I know it's kind of early for everybody, and it was really cool of both you guys to be interested in talking about this. Actually, this is also the first themed, or at least timed to a theme. I know we did an episode sort of about schools because we were all pissed off about Betsy DeVos, but. <laughs> I totally dropped the ball. Nobody, <laughs> nobody was into, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's my whiteness, but I was afraid to do black history month without a black person. <laughs> and that might've been a good call, but you know, <laughs> you know if not nobody, ne- but not necessarily, I mean, it. <laughs> if nobody bites next year, I'll just talk about, I'll, I'll, I'll address the films from the approach of, a privileged white guy but yeah i was like oh, it's too you'll early have to, you'll have to have at least one minority of some sort <laughs> to balance you <laughs> yeah you, you know Mohawk, that counts right <laughs> somewhere in there this is america i thought we were doing away with quotas in this country that affirmative action thing i thought that was you know going out the window why do we well, need that well because the most racist people in charge say that racism doesn't exist yeah, it was never a problem until someone came along and pointed out that it was a problem. I'm a loving kind of guy. I know you, you, you're pretty, pretty loving people. I don't, I don't know how I ended up that way, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there just got to be so much hate that you are counterbalancing it because you're a contrarian against bad. I am. I have that. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's- that's exactly what it is. I'm so contrarian that when being hateful and spiteful became popular, I'm like, fuck you. I'm going to love everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm love your fucking heart, piece of shit. And when it becomes back to the norm where loving everything is good, I'll go back to hating everything. Yeah, the balance. Yeah. We need the universal balance. Exactly. So we are gathered here today, dearly beloved, speaking of love, to talk about... <laughs> What was this? 1998? Yes. Written and directed by Bill Condon. A little film called Gods and Monsters. It premiered January 21st at Sundance. It did not do well. It did not do well at the box office. Um, It had a $10 million budget and it recouped about six. See, I thought it actually had like a smaller budget than ten. Why? Well, um, you might know more, and that's you. You know more than I do, and that's why I like to have you on these shows. Um, no, I was just looking on IMDb. <laughs> uh, this is this is the Wikipedia. Well, his, his the budget that he's reading might be with the PNR that uh, tried to promote it, mm. and the well, the IMDb might just be the budget of the film itself. I've seen that where Wikipedia adds okay. everything together compared to what IMDb uh, IMDb just shows. Usually yeah. the cost of making the film minus the all the promotional material stuff that they have to spend on it. Well, uh, let's say that they probably... I don't think they promoted it that much, though. I, You know, honestly, it's not... 
like so many other films. I mean, okay, IMDb says the budget was 3.5 mil. Well, then, then it was a success, according to IMDb. Exactly. Exactly. All right. I mean, it was on a, I knew it was on a tight budget, but yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it did go up to 10 mil when you figure in promotional stuff. But I really don't remember seeing that many. There weren't the TV ads and, you know, billboards and stuff that you see now. Yeah, there was nothing for this that I remember at the time when it came out. I found it on cable. I just happened upon it. And in reading the description, seeing that it was about James Whale's life and not knowing anything else, like while watching it on digital cable in the like late 90s, I dove on it. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, it's about James Whale, the guy who directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I'm in, you know, and that's the only reason that I watched it as a kid. And it, it had quite an impact on me. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. But I had not heard a single thing of it until it popped on. I think it was Stars at the time that bought it. And that was how I caught it, it was just like digital cable just flipping through channels one day and it was coming on. Uh, see, I got it in the video store. Really? Yeah, in Cincinnati. On VHS? No. <laughs> I know. I don't I, think like, it was VHS. I couldn't. Was I can't it? remember Maybe. when it started. Uh, so long ago. I actually, I can tell you, uh, VHS but I didn't... DVD transitions were usually late '90s, like '99, 2000. Uh, so, so it is possible you could have rented this on DVD. Yeah, it didn't it... really start going crazy for DVD until like the early 20s, like 2001, 20s. Right. The great so I may not have seen I I may not have seen it right away though that's that's also my ah, okay, <laughs> so sure. I'm trying to remember it was but it wasn't yeah it wasn't something that I mean because at the time I think I was like regularly subscribing to the Advocate um, which is I guess considered the leading gay news magazine basically Gay Newsweek um, it's. I, they, I'm sure they had like a some sort of review in there, but so I knew about it, but it wasn't in the theater. I don't remember seeing it come to our theaters. Yeah, yeah it had a little bit of an Oscar buzz. It won. It won one Academy Award screenplay. Yes, yeah, screenplay. Screenplay. And then McKellen lost his nomination. Sir and Ian Lynn McKellen. Redgrave. Sorry. And Lynn Redgrave. Yes. I think the first time since we're going through our first our first gods and monsters I think I told both of you guys this, but I wasn't even speaking of the uh possibly poor marketing because we all like this movie. I don't want to bury the lead, but or spoiler alert or whatever. I don't think we're going to trash a a movie for Pride Month necessarily. So we Shouldn't could, but this would not be the movie to pick. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. We're not talking about cruising or something along those lines that has a controversial relationship with the gay community. Yeah. Yeah, that cruising would be the one to kind of lay into a little bit. Which <laughs> is a good movie, but it's highly problematic. Okay, let's put it that way. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's Willem Friedkin, you know, Al Pacino is good. However, there's a caveat. I would not put that with Gods and Monsters in, the, in any way, shape, or form. I think Gods and Monsters is a very good representation of living a gay life, whereas cruising is the Republican ideal of what a gay life actually is, <laughs> where it's just all this violence and just, like, 
you know, just pure, uh, unadulterated, weird, crazy shit going on at all times. I think that's basically how he would look at well, those two films. Well, yes, yes, someone else's vision of this is, it, it, well, it makes a difference too. I mean, you have, well, it's a different time period in time, for one. Right. But you're talking about a celebration of a life rather than a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's going to go in different directions anyway, but um, well, it is a it is a big difference of what thirty years makes <laughs> in Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's not in the seventies that you didn't see some really positive portrayals of you know homosexuality in Hollywood, but they were few and far between, and they weren't still were not as. I would say not as good as this, but also they didn't feature the level of talent too. I mean, Sir Ian McKellen, I mean, I'm sorry, it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> and, and let's not knock Brendan Fraser. I mean, you want to talk about Actually, prowess. Well, he, you know, he does, he does an amazing performance in this that I didn't think he was capable of. Yeah, somebody brought some type of an actor to the surface on this man that we've never seen ever again or before. Like, he's really good in this film, and that's it. Like, that's all he had. This was his whole career of acting prowess is this film. I couldn't I couldn't think of uh, another one. Um, I was trying. I even did a couple glances at uh, Blast from the Past, if you ever saw that movie. <laughs> Funny that you say that. I was actually watching that the other day. It just happened to be on TV. <laughs> Brennan Fraser is like the poor man's Keanu Reeves, where if you have the right director working with him, they can pull a pretty decent acting gig out of him, and they can get a pretty good role out of him. But if the right person just isn't there, then he's just really kind of wooden and is basically just being Brendan Fraser on screen, and it's like the same character every time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only difference really with Encino Man is he speaks a little less. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Encino Man. Encino Man. Because <laughs> they found, uh, what, a caveman pot? And you know what? Caveman pots are made out of clay, and Brendan Fraser is called Clayton in this movie. <laughs> Way to bring it around. <laughs> <laughs> it's you a went a little more, a little more than six degrees of separation there, yeah. Well, you know, as as a guy that goes off on tangents, I've worked a little bit at uh, redirecting myself. The first time I saw this was, uh, I can't remember who I was saying this to, but this was the first film that my first ever film studies class started with. Way That's back, but it, it was still a couple years after it came out. And I, <laughs> I looked all over my house for my notes because... I'd like to see what I thought of this 10 or so years ago. It was all for naught, so. And to make a long story short, too late! I've got you wonderful people here here to talk about this. And I guess uh, before we get into just running through the movie and everything, uh, we've talked about everybody's first time with it. I couldn't remember if either of you voted for this. If you did, please tell me why. <laughs> okay, I have to refresh my memory. We were allowed to vote for more than one thing, correct? Yes. Yes. So, yes, I this was one of the ones I voted for. I voted for every one that was on I there. I thought I voted for more than one, and then I'm like, wait, am I thinking we have a different poll? <laughs> <laughs> I voted for it just because of 
the personal story that I have with the film, which I kind of alluded to on one of my Cinema PsyOps episodes. And then the reason that I got brought on to this was because the guy that did on that show, Kit, had said that, you know, there's definitely a story for me watching this film that he wanted to hear. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm a cis straight male. What what, what do I have to bring to, to the table here? But I guess the way that the film affected me uh, will hopefully offer a little bit of, uh, you know, insight onto how film can actually be, you know, art and film can actually be used to sway hearts and minds because it definitely had that effect for me, you know, which I'm hoping we, we can we can discuss that a little bit. And that's kind of all I really have to bring to the table other than a lot of the film itself. <laughs> hey, that, that's a lot. Um, we'll probably either get into that where we get to the point in the film where you had your epiphany or whatever or we'll talk about it at the end when we're wrapping up because it sounds like it's we shouldn't just have it at the beginning i don't know no no definitely not it's gonna be like another one of court's frank cross moments i'm sure nice <laughs> awesome where it just okay. opens up and starts blathering like uncontrollably so i'm not crazy you have to do something you have to take a chance you do have to get involved. There are people that don't have enough to eat. That there are people that are cold. You can go out and say hello to these people. You can take an old blanket out of the closet and say, here, you can make them a sandwich and say, oh, by the way, here. I get it now. And if you if you give, then you then it can happen. It's not just the poor and the hungry. It's, it's everybody who's... And it can happen tonight for all of you. It can happen every day. You've just got to want that feeling. And if you like it and you want it, You'll get greedy for it. You'll want it every day of your life, and it can happen to you. I don't. I believe in it now. I believe it's going to happen to me now. I'm ready for it. And uh, it's great. It's a good feeling. It's it's really better than I felt in a long time. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, <laughs> it um... is when you're on this end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say better you than me, though. I mean, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I need to adjust my windscreen, so if you guys could just hold on for a second. I mean, you can talk or whatever, but I'm going to take my headphones off for a second. And then we'll get into this. Talk amongst yourselves. I'm getting all clamp. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you a topic. Duran is neither a Duran nor a Duran. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm getting that accent down pat living in Brooklyn, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got spilk as like a nectarous blank. If we've been talking long enough, maybe I'll play a promo for a podcast I love, or if I get uh, forceful with my music, I'll shove a song in here. I'll be right back with everybody in just a second. Are you sick of the same old stale podcast? Well, then join Vanessa and David as they dissect movies of all kinds. The two lifelong cinema lovers bring their favorites, curiosities, and first-time watches to the operating table and inject them with a healthy dose of snark. Then there's the waiting room, where they examine books and short stories. So just look for them on iTunes, and where fine podcasts are available. They're part of the Legion Podcast Network. Follow them on Twitter at VDClinicPod or email them at VDClinicPod at gmail.com. 
They're ready to cure what ails you. And still, they just might be contagious. Get information or a pamphlet at most pharmacies or a health clinic. If you need help, see a doctor. part where I say winter is coming and reveal how much I love Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> you can. You definitely can. Uh, I'll just do it slyly there and, and turn <laughs> yeah. it into a joke. Oh, so you're probably super excited when, I don't even know when that comes back, next year? Next summer? Yeah, it's going to be way too damn long, but I've got plenty of other shows to console me with. <laughs> yeah, American Gods just started up. I know, I need to get my hands on it. Um, I was just binging uh, Legion with the wife um, just before we started recording. And I'm like, oh, I got to go downstairs. I got to get ready to record. And we're like on the seventh episode and we're like <laughs> halfway through it. She's like, now, now you're going to leave. I'm like, I have to. <laughs> I have it scheduled. <laughs> We've got the rest of the day. We don't have to talk for three hours like sometimes happens. I promise. I'm trying to keep my... Uh, my uh, crazy bingy talk down as be best as possible. I'll try not to blather too much because <laughs> it's usually my fault when you have me on the line that we talk so long. Oh, you know, I I just hate cutting anything out of a conversation, so I usually leave everything as intact as possible. Except for I'll cut out a few of my ums. I'll definitely do that. If you're editing it. You might as well make yourself sound as smart as possible. That's what I do. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, that's that's the benefit of it. And I know you try. You try to help Matt. Um, uh, there's no help for Matt. <laughs> yeah. There's only so much editing can do. Um, so, yeah, we are here with Vanessa McHenry and Mr. Court Psyops of the Cinema Psyops podcast. And Vanessa, I believe at the point of this show's running, your show yes. is out. Um. It yeah, actually. This will be um, the end of May, early June. Yeah, so the, our first episode should be out the first week of May. 
Yeah. So are you excited so, that it's such a roaring success? <laughs> yes. Actually, I've had fans even before I put the podcast episode out. I, I, I jokingly say that, but I've had an, I had a number of people ask me after I was on here last time and after I was on uh, Cinema PsyOps, the alien episode, I had people say, oh, my God, you're doing a podcast. I'm like, really? You're, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're excited, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> well, oh. like someone actually wants to hear me babble. Sure. <laughs> oh, you know, we're all looking forward to it. And we all keep asking you back on our shows. So hopefully, hopefully you still have time for us. Uh, let's see. This is June, so you've got at least one or two episodes out. Um, the response has been just amazing, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I I was expecting something big, but I was not expecting something <laughs> so positive and in such a dark times. Because I'm sure something else has been blown up uh, by now. Um, uh, sadly. Uh. Yes. <laughs> Let's but, hope it's the administration itself. Oh, the hey. whole thing imploded. Hey now. <laughs> if only, if only. There is hope. Well, yes. no, because we're we're living in the future right now as we record this, but things the the news seem to be tightening around them, man. Things are starting to fall the wayside. Investigations are actually starting to come to a head more and more. No matter how much they try to slow it down, it looks like something's going to happen. So maybe it'll implode by then. Yeah, if if they put the same amount of effort as they put into investigating Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton's emails, we're going to either oh, have it would a be new over election by now. by now, or yeah, we'll be bitching about crazy religious Mike Pence. Oh, I think he's involved. I, I think he's going down too. I, he, I I feel like it's real deep. I feel like it's like yeah. a big portion of the Republican Party, and that's why it's taking so long. It's going no, so slow. No, Pence has known a lot about the Russian involvement and multiple things, and yeah. And he was They're the closest to connected to Flynn, too, right? Yep. Yep. I would, wouldn't be surprised if McConnell and some of the other GOP Republicans <laughs> were not involved as well. I would be like, I know my conspiracy theory is showing, but I really would not be shocked to find out that a lot of the Republican Party was involved in this. It just seems like it goes so much deeper than just his cabinet members and his transition team and his campaign people. Adam, uh, you broke the news in the Washington Post today, so tell us what you learned. What we learned was that uh, there was a meeting uh, in June 2016 of the Republican leaders. Uh, it was a meeting that took place after uh, the Ukrainian prime minister had met with uh, these same leaders and had described uh, Russia's interference in Ukrainian politics. And that led uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the majority leader on the House side, uh, to basically make a comment, an extraordinary comment. He uh, begins by saying, I'll guarantee you that's what it is. The Russians hacked the DNC and got the op research that they had on Trump. And then McCarthy laughs. McCarthy then adds, there's two people I think Putin pays, Rohrbacher and Trump. There's then laughter by some of the lawmakers in the room. And then McCarthy adds, swear to God. Ryan then interjects and says, quote, this is an off the record. No leaks, all right? Ryan then adds, this is how we know we're a real family here. 
So we, we went to uh, we went to Ryan's office, we went to McCarthy's office, and we basically said that we are going to report this dialogue. Uh, they came back to us and said that uh, that it never happened, uh, that there was uh, there was no such conversation. Uh, they they said it was fiction. Uh, we went back to them a second time and we said we're going to report uh, the the actual we're going to print the actual transcript which you just uh, had me read from. To which they said that it was a made up transcript, uh, that it was false. <coughs> And then we went to them one last time and we said to them, uh, we were actually going to be saying that we listened to the audio of this and verified it, to which they basically said, yes, uh, this conversation happened. Uh, we take back the earlier denials uh, and uh, that uh, McCarthy uh, was, uh, was, it was a bad joke on his part. It feels like they all kind of conspired together to make this happen along with the gerrymandering. It definitely seems like People that actually know how politics work had to be involved, and that is not really the uh, a strong point for anybody in the top of this administration. They can be rotten bastards, but they're going to need somebody else's help to do something as big as things seem to be. And, you know, maybe I hate to think about it. Maybe this will come out in five or six years when we can just enjoy the trials. Um, instead of the extreme vindication and a quick breath of relief, but it just doesn't seem like that. And I know that's what everybody says when their enemies are writhing. I don't know. What do you guys think? I would hope sooner than later, but as long as it does, as long as they don't all get away with it, I'll be okay. <laughs> because they seem to be, the best part about this is they're so ineffectual, even with all of this power. They're still fucking up left and right, and they still can't get shit done because they're arguing and fighting within themselves. So as long as they can keep that up at least until 2018, I can breathe a little bit now. But mm -hmm. I would hope sooner than later. All it would take is the right kind of people in the right place to actually make these investigations work instead of being slowed down and just you know forced to be pushed to the side and not being done properly. And once that happens, and hopefully maybe some elections in 2018 will cover that, maybe it'll move a little bit faster and we can get more than the five years. But, uh, you know, as long as they, I mean, the FBI is fully investigating this regardless, and they can't push that by the wayside, and they can't make that go away. So something's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And being patient is the hardest part for me. And you saw the Pentagon uh, launch their own investigation into separate possible crimes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like the news is tightening. I mean, it's FBI obvious there's Pentagon. been some kind of a cover up. Yeah, it's it's obvious there's been some kind of a cover up, which is more than what you need to be impeached. Mm -hmm. So that's there. It's just a matter of when they're going to fucking move on it. And with a full Republican Congress, they're like, oh no, they're they're trying not to. Yeah. If it was reverse, if, if it was like like if it was Hillary Clinton or some other Democratic person in office, you would see like McCarthyan level witch trials happening to try and push them out of office. Oh, day and one. happen at lightning speeds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of forgot over the last eight years, I kind of forgot that this Congress was able to do stuff, but they are passing and reversing laws. I, I feel like in the first hundred days, which we, at this, uh, at this recording we just passed, and now it's, gosh, almost 160 days at the point of release of this. They've done, I feel like they've done more than they have in the last eight years. I know uh, Trumple Stiltskin has signed more executive orders than anybody since fucking FDR, 
he's the reason why there was a two-term limit. I think it was only three, wasn't it? It was yeah. three. Yeah, it was three. So, yeah. The greatest, most successful 100 days ever, period. Fuck that guy. You do that too well. You do that too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I threw up a little in my mouth there. Yeah. We will continue to vent as we go, but Gods and Monsters, 1998. We open, we open with uh, Brendan Fraser waking up in his fifties. Uh, tr- this place, this takes place in the fifties. Yeah, I. Yeah. Uh, I, it's just after the Korean War in the okay. 1950s. Yeah. So he's in his trailer park. He's a handyman, jack of all trades, with a square head, and he. Uh, <laughs> He goes to a fancy, fancy house where it takes me a few minutes into any movie to separate him from being Gandalf and Magneto because he's done so much more. See, I think of him so much more because I was a, a double major in English and theater. In college, we watched, in this early 90s, watched so many of the Royal Shakespearean theater things and you know, videos or whatever. And so that's how I was introduced to him. But then the first role I saw after that was him in the movie adaptation of Jeffrey. No, he's not in Jeffrey. Sorry. I'm, the, I'm thinking <laughs> Patrick Stewart. But it's the same, but it's the same level of, you know, extravagance of the Shakespearean. And then still with, um, Ian McKellen, the first thing I saw him in after was something in the from the gay theater genre, too. So it was still very theatrical, but still very gay. Yeah, I see him as that more before I see him as Gandalf. Okay. I always see him as death from Last Action Hero. That's how I always picture him. Yeah, funnily enough, I watched about 20 minutes of that yesterday, and then I turned it off. Yeah, if you, if you actually... It, at the very end of Last Action Hero, spoiler alert for anybody who actually gives a shit about the quote-unquote <laughs> plot of Last Action Hero. But uh, at the very end of it, when uh, Jack gets shot and he's coming out of the theater and the movie ticket is on like a Bergman-like film and he's mm-hmm. death from a Bergman film. And that's him. That's Ian McKellen playing death in Last Action Hero. Oh my god. that <laughs> I haven't seen the whole movie since around the time it came out in what, 94 or 95? I totally see that now. Uh, there was sort of a blank mask of death from Bill and Ted's bogus journey that, <laughs> I, that I had to get past. Fair uh, enough. But yeah, he was he was he was death and last action hero, and that's what I kind of the first thing that I think of besides the Hobbit movies. That's the next one I always go for. But he was he was really good in. Uh, I can't remember. You were talking about the Shakespeare. I saw him in either. King Lear or Richard II? I think it was King Lear. Um, whichever one it was where the king was kind of crazy and ended up taking his fool out into the wilderness. That's like every Shakespeare. Yeah, so he, he was a king in a Shakespeare thing. Uh, anyway. In multiple Shakespeare things. Or, well, he, uh, just, he just has a presence of regalness like right there on screen. Like He just feels like something above a mortal man, if you will, every time you see him. Which is why he plays characters like Magneto and Gandalf and Death or, you know, Kings or whatever so well. Because he just has that air of, of greatness to him on screen. He just, he just like, just exudes that every time you see him. He definitely commands a lot of 
respect and a lot of attention. And I think he he's he's a smooth talker. And really early on, for those who didn't know much about James Whale, one of the central issues of the film is introduced when he's being um, interviewed by a college student for a paper. And he just has so much fun getting him to take his clothes off. I love that the college student is game with it and he just calls him a dirty old man and mm-hmm. he just kind of winks and he's like, you bet, now go for it. You know, <laughs> give this dirty yeah. old man a little bit of a thrill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to smoke my cigar. You'll have a story to tell. I don't, I, and this, this film is mostly the, the biggest um, info dump of the life of James Whale that I've ever had. So I don't, I know. Uh, some of you probably know a lot more about him, but was was that just was he generally a comfortable, open about a sexuality guy uh, outside? Because yes. I know he said something about in Hollywood they didn't give a fuck who you fucked, but he said it in a more eloquent way as long yeah. as you kept it out of the papers. But he was pretty open his entire career about his sexuality. You know, even in the 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 30s, it, you know, it's it was a different environment, but. Perhaps because he was the director, people would just, I don't, I don't know. There, there are points where it, what I've read is that they said that, you know, he didn't necessarily, like, brag about it all the time, but he never, like, concealed it. You know, it just was. I would imagine you know? that he would just live his life as himself, and in the 30s, that would seem like he was bold and out and, Absolutely. and proud, instead of just being who he was. Like, like if James Weld were to live in this day and age, well... In this day and age, before the current uh, administration, you know, right. I think I think he would just be seen as just a just a director. You know, his sexuality wouldn't have even come into play or, or really been a thing because he was just being himself and he just wanted to be who he was. But you put that back in the 30s with that kind of mentality and that attitude, and he's almost a revolutionary just for wanting to be himself. Being comfortable in yourself. Yeah, and just being proud of who you are and not being ashamed and not trying to hide it and not throwing on a beard and marrying the most recent actress that you can to, you know, rock Hudson it all away, if you will. <laughs> well, and again, because he was a director versus an actor, he had a little more wiggle room with that. Yeah. If he had been an actor, then he would have probably had to go through the whole thing and probably probably would have i mean there were so many there were so few actors at that time that did publicly appear like with a same-sex partner you know and even fewer women like who would appear with a same-sex partner yeah it's it's kind of part of their brand they need to be accessible to the opposite sex in order for them to sell themselves as actors or actresses in this day um that was and i think that's more the reason why they they put the beards on in hollywood and gave a shit because they needed to sell it to middle America Bible Belt people, <laughs> you know. That's the reason it still happens. Right. Yeah. Because let's, still... let's 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 not. I mean, it still happens. I mean, we could speculate or say things about certain leading actors and actresses today, but it's still there's a still a Hollywood machine. Now, granted, the studio system is not. I mean, that that threw a whole different wrench in the works. And the, but you still have any kind of your gossip column. You have TMZ now, where okay, you had Hedda Hopper, fifty 
70 whatever years ago. <laughs> there were there's still those there's still those gossip hounds. Have you ever seen the documentary Do I Sound Gay? Yes. I have uh, not. I would I would definitely recommend checking it out. There's a guy who uh was he an actor or a comedian if you remember Vanessa? Uh or a writer. I think an actor. Okay, an actor. I think an actor. And he noticed he was usually getting typecast as the gay friend or something like that. So he sort of um, explores the idea of the stereotype of you sound gay. Um, He went to a speech therapist who had a program of how to make people not sound gay. And it just sort of snowballs into looking at the ridiculousness of things like that. There was one, one guy he was interviewing that, quote unquote didn't sound gay and he said that you know how people sound the most gay was when they're sucking my dick <laughs> and it's 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 a it, <laughs> it's a it's a good documentary it's usually on netflix but anyway i think yeah i saw it on streaming netflix yeah okay uh hey i brought us on our first tangent where were we oh no i think it all fits in with exactly what we're talking about because it goes the gambit of how things have quote unquote remained the same, even though everything else has changed, you know, like society as a whole has become more and more accepting. Whereas Hollywood is still trying to basically pigeonhole their actors and actresses and the people that need to fit in with the Bible belt, which refuses to change and has remained the same, but it's becoming more and more narrow. So they're pigeonholing these poor actors and actresses for a smaller and smaller tangent that has gotten louder and more vocal over time, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, and I think part of what with I mean James Whale the when he was he started working as a director is right when the Hayes Code came into being, and all of a sudden any hints of homosexuality that may have been in cinema, you know, were everything started being squashed and this like extra moral code had to be applied to just even in the sense of you know nudity or oh god you can't kiss for more than three seconds or whatever the ridiculous rule was up until even show a toilet under the haze code not 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 somebody sitting on a toilet like a toilet could not even be shown right (laughs) and during the haze code that's so ridiculous yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why it was Psycho in 1960 that ended up being the first time you saw a toilet actually flushing. You yeah, know, without was... any, you know, without any gross material in it, just flushing. Yeah, exactly. It's so crazy. Cause the code, that was until, what, at least the mid-50s, right? Or, uh, no. 67, uh, I think. In 68. It was being railed against in the... It was being railed against in the 60s and then finally dropped by late 60s, yeah. Okay, that's, yeah. And when that's when the MPAA came into being. Mm, which is a whole other... Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah. Moral police. J- j- just watch the documentary, <laughs> this film is not rated. Um, yeah. That oh, is so hard. I've finally seen. Yeah, I, I've seen it once. And then I was, uh, for the show, I was looking into getting it. And I might have to mm. explore other avenues, but it's really rare on DVD. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And I think that, yeah, that film was not rated. And that's 
probably why it's hard to find on DVD and all sorts of things. I couldn't even <laughs> get it on the uh, the production company's website. Wow. Really? Wow. Yeah. And, and maybe it's changed. It's been a couple months since I've looked, but I was like, motherfuckers, I, I'm trying to be legit here. <laughs> <laughs> trying to go by being legal? Yeah. I want to be above board here, but information is free. Power <laughs> to the people. Um, <laughs> but as a, a another Frankensteinian bit that comes came out in the movie that I didn't notice w- until I started watching it with a critical eye is I never noticed that Hannah calls him the master. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was cool. He had a little doting Igor, Igor. Um, yes. <laughs> taking care of him, even though her god is stupid and thinks he's going to hell. <laughs> yeah well and also i mean the character of of you know that the hannah character is very much like some of those ones that you did see in james whale films where it was usually a woman an older woman who has like some sort of element of ridiculous outrage that they show and meanwhile the person or people that they're presenting it to think they're just completely ridiculous you know and just kind of like <laughs> laughing at them you saw it completely in Wales films so i thought it was just perfect yeah between that and calling him master it just a nice little touch <laughs> yeah I, I liked that and i liked the juxtaposition between the monster's head and fraser's head throughout the film and him being made out of clay reformed into his monster and but Hannah totally tosses uh, her master out of the closet real early on. Uh, well, when when he has that friend that comes to visit, it's pretty obvious that uh, I don't know if the two themselves were involved, but it, um, the, the, the orientation of both gentlemen becomes very, very apparent very quickly in their conversation, though. Well, very early in the film without her even saying anything. Well, that was Wales X, uh, David Lewis. They had been partners for 35 years. I mean, sorry, not 35 years. <laughs> 25. I'm making, I'm making up more numbers. Alternative no, facts. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but decades, you know what I mean? And they did live together kind of openly. Even though, I mean, Lewis was a producer, so he wasn't as open about it as Whale was. I mean, that's why Lewis's career maybe lasted longer. He was willing to put up with more bullshit. He was the one who showed up at the the garden party with uh, Elizabeth Taylor, right? Or is that another old friend? No, no, no. No, yes. And and that's who uh, James Whale uh, sort of showed his... I was trying to find out, figure out if it was contempt or encouragement when he said something like, I'm as free as the air and David, is that what you said? His, uh, his partner's name yeah. was said, well, yeah. the rest of us aren't. And, uh, whale is just kind of like, well, you totally can be basically. And it, and from what I read, that was part, part of what broke up their relationship was the fact that whale didn't, he didn't want to be quiet about it. And, Again, Lewis, his career 
maybe lasted longer because he was willing to put up with more of the Hollywood bullshit and you know he was a but he was just a producer you know and I don't I don't know I mean it's he is his uh his credits are you know he's definitely working more years but has more far more credits whale only directed 20 pictures which i mean not not only i mean <laughs> come on that's still pretty good but <laughs> yeah but a good portion of those are extreme heavy hitters that are in the horror annals to last forever i mean frankenstein bride of frankenstein invisible man like yeah. he he made some of the most well-known and most remembered films Whereas some of the stuff that this other guy might have produced forever, everybody's going to forget about. And that's the that's the beauty of horror is it lasts significantly longer than any other genre. And well, in please go. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I, uh, you're. I was just going to say I I, I kind of thought, and this is just speaking from an outsider, that I thought maybe. I mean, the source material was also great, but I think one of the things that made him so good at directing those kinds of films that stick with you forever is that I feel like he might have had a bit more of an understanding of a misunderstood being that everybody calls a monster. On sight, no less. Yeah. Right. So... That that feeling of the outsider is something that they definitely uh, dig into a lot later in the film as well as the friendship between... Frazier's character Clayton and James Whale develops because Whale's very open and he speaks a lot of this stuff and you can kind of see they, they hint at it and they're a little bit more obvious as it, as it goes too that the Frankenstein's monster kind of became this this symbol of being a gay man and living your lifestyle as you you want to even though the rest of the world immediately is repelled by that and wants to destroy it because they can't understand it and it's so different from what they're used to even though this being is still a thinking breathing living feeling sentient creature that exists it's being treated as an it and not a human and i think he really identified with that particularly uh for frankenstein's monster and in some cases in the film too they have it to where because it's become this ideal, it's almost like this sexualized perfect being to him, too. You know, when he keeps creating these monsters, it's like the ideal in some way, shape, or form to him, while also being something that has to be somewhat grotesque and and sort of scare away the straights, if you will. I don't know how else to put it. It just kind of seems that they hint at that throughout the film, that that's sort of at least what Frankenstein's monster may have represented for him. And obviously, the creature does, you know... The, the big thing with Frankenstein's monster that, that I myself have always been drawn to is the fact that he's created without being asked to be. He didn't want to be this thing. He's It's like the, the perfect existential nightmare. No one wants to be born. You know, no one just is like living out in this limbo and then all of a sudden, you know, I really want a corporeal body that slowly decays over time and I'm forced to live in that rot while I try to come to terms with who I am. You know, you, that's basically what you know, Mary Shelley, when she writes it, I get the the inclination that Frankenstein's monster is like an allegory for fear of parenthood, if you will. Um, when James Whale adapts it, it's it feels more like, you know, just the fear of just being born who you are and having automatically being created as to who you are and having people be repelled by that, horrified by it, and just automatically labeling you as a monster. And you have no choice in the matter. You just are who you are. 
and I feel that that really drew him in in that aspect of it and you really get that feeling in Frankenstein but even more so in Bride of Frankenstein that that was somewhat of what he was laying over the storyline for Mary Shelley to bring his own sort of tale into it well Universal already had the rights to Frankenstein and then when they approached Whale to just direct a film and he ended up picking Frankenstein so it makes sense that I mean it's something yes that speaks to him or you know on that level of I am an outsider, and also the fact that he seemingly had the attitude of, this is, I'm born gay, this is just who I am, you know, that it, it wasn't, yeah, I have to, it's something different, I have to come to terms with it, but also the, you know, in the fact of, you people have to understand that this is just who I am, and it explains yeah, maybe why he decided to retire from Hollywood when he did as well. That just, I'm the outsider. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, and I'm not going to change who I am. It just, I am who I am. And if you see that as a monster and want to run, then so be it, because this monster is a powerful being that will not stop existing just because you want it to. Exactly. I'll be right here when you need me. <laughs> Letting you the also pool get go. The feelings too. <laughs> you also get the feeling too uh, the character of Pretorius they come right out and just basically say it in the behind the scenes stuff that they're filming in this of the creation of Bride of Frankenstein but Pretorius and Frankenstein at one point in time were supposed to be lovers according to this film like that's the way that they were setting it up in Bride of Frankenstein when they're filming it which as you can see on Colin Clive's face he's like what the hell are you talking about <laughs> in that scene and they're they're kind of walking him through and he's like so this is basically the tension that you have so you know and you kind of see it a little bit in the film if you you look at it from that frame of mind Pretorius is always very uh very sort of like shocked and angry and sort of uh, contemptuous and, and jealous towards Frankenstein's new bride not the bride that they're making you know but the actual woman that he married uh in the in the film you see it in actually in Bride of Frankenstein quite a bit um, there's these like awkward glances or, or he'll have like a sort of catty thing to like throw her away or a little statement. Or, and he even interrupts their wedding night before they can actually consummate their marriage. Like he literally gets right in there and blocks it from <laughs> happening, even though, even though he's sick. So there's a lot of like subtext that got worked into the film, whether or not you're reading into it personally, or if maybe, you know, my thoughts on the film got peppered by watching this itself. Uh, you know, from watching Gods and Monsters, did my thoughts on Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein get changed a little bit and peppered, perhaps? But at the same right, uh, or at the same time, like seeing these things in the interpretations that both of the different films have, or, or can be had, where you you see these different levels of what may or may not be represented in the horror films, it's what makes the idea, you know, particularly where art can kind of sway your opinion or have you kind of looked differently at, at things in the world my interpretation of frankenstein and bride of frankenstein and even invisible man was completely changed by watching gods and monsters and trying to look at a, a different level of things which is really interesting that one film can change my entire interpretation of an entire career of films without even knowing that it would in watching it that's it's kind of interesting the way that 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 can that can work yeah yeah i 
on a slightly different angle of that. I feel like that's partially why, at least I personally, have trouble um, separating the artist from their art. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me to look at uh, stuff objectively once I know something about the, the person that makes it. You know, in James Whale, it really enhances the subtext of movies. And the other end of that, sometimes it's hard for me to watch a Roman Polanski movie. Or... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Try watching Jeepers Creepers when you know all the stuff that you need to know about Victor Salva's life and how creepy he got. Oh, God, yeah. Behind the scenes of making a clown house. It completely ruins, like, every single shot uh, of the film. It focuses too much on, like, young boy midriff and stuff. You're, like, really creeped out by watching any of his stuff now. Oh, I would imagine, especially in the one where there's all those high school boys on the bus. Yeah, it gets real uncomfortable real fast. You know, like the the monster that's just looking to get a hold of a little boy, it becomes very creepy when you know a lot about Victor Salva's life. Well, and there's also you run into the danger too of the more you know of an artist, and the more you find out about how much of a prick they are, the less you can actually enjoy their work, mm. especially if they weren't always, especially if they weren't always that way, and then they just slowly with time have changed into a complete raving lunatic that you can't stand anymore, like Chevy Chase. <laughs> there's a lot of Chevy. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of Chevy Chase's career is ruined by the fact, and I, I have a hard time separating my hate for the man now versus my love for him in film as a kid and seeing him in the '80s and stuff. Even though it, it was probably the same prick then, but now that I know it, like every time I see him on screen, I just uh, it, it almost ruins it for me. I think you're all fucked in the head. We're ten hours from the fucking fun park, and you want to bail out? Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm gonna have fun, and you're gonna have fun. We're all gonna have so much fucking fun we'll need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn spiles. You'll be whistling symphony doodah out of your assholes. <laughs> I gotta be crazy. I'm on a pilgrimage to see a moose. Don't touch! <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. But I mean, even without dissecting this movie, uh, I, I think the story is straight up just a really good story. I mean, there's the the guy who had a shitty, shitty father who came from nothing meets the guy who also kind of had a shitty, shitty father who came from nothing. One was more successful. The other one is still struggling. And, you know, they find each other. And there was the whole super homophobic freak out at the private lunch tea party thing that they had uh where clay gets really mad says some horrible hateful shit and walks out and then he realizes that all the people that he thinks are his friends are treating him more like shit than james whale ever did and luckily he thinks about that and he tries to kindle the healthy relationships that he has which is that's seems to be the only one i don't know well, Clayton has that reaction because that's a that's a conditioned response. That's what's been taught to him. That's how he's supposed to respond. That's what's been ingrained over and over again that you automatically hate and fear a homosexual in this time frame. And that still exists, you know, to this day that where people are indoctrinated in that belief structure and, you know, like raised in in such a way. So that that kind of reaction is almost something that's an autonomic response where you don't even realize that you're going to be that way. And until you've actually like, you could go your entire life and never meet someone 
that may be a homosexual. And then when you do, like Clayton does here, this was probably the first time. And obviously his reaction is more of a conditioned response than him himself. It's when he actually thinks about it and examines how he feels about the guy, you know, and their friendship versus his, you know, supposedly hetero healthy friendships with, you know, just just guys and people that he hangs out with. It's until he actually examines that, that he kind of realizes this response is not who I am and that's not who I want to be. And that's a very powerful moment for me watching the film, like to see him actually come to the realization that this person is a better friend even though I've been conditioned to hate him for who he was born to be, I need to get over that. I need to look past that. I need to step over that small curb and realize that it's who a person is, not who a person likes to fuck that defines them. Well, and, you know, and Whale even says when, you know, Clay comes back after that, even says, I'm to take it that you haven't had much experience with people of my persuasion. And the thing is, he's probably met someone before who's gay. He just didn't know it. Right, like, right. Because uh, no atheists in foxholes, but there most certainly were lovers. <laughs> yeah. Please, please, please go on. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's just that's all. I, it, it's, it's that's it's this fear of the unknown, and also this what has been taught socially because of a fear of the unknown that ends up. You know, feeding this this intense homophobia for or violent homophobia for some people. You know, yeah. that's just kind of like, oh, this is what's expected of me. And they don't. Most of these people who do have that kind of hate and spew that kind of hate, they don't stop to think. You know, like Clay did, and they wait a minute. This might actually be. Let's look at a person as an individual. You know. They, they don't stop to think about that. They just see, instead of a person, they see an it. It goes back to the monster. Yeah, it ties together perfectly. And I think that's one of the things the film does really well is it shows you bits of the making of the film. It shows you pieces of, like, Frankenstein being made or Bride of Frankenstein. And then it shows you certain aspects of Whale's current life and his interactions with Clayton that fit to that that mold of the film and, and some of the story that's trying to be told there and it really adapts it quite well i thought that was quite interesting how it did it you know the more and more we talk about this the more it makes sense that this was this would be one of the first films that a professor would show to uh a young class because this was probably my sophomore year i did all my bullshit classes or not bullshit but my less interesting classes you know freshman year so i could start having fun but i mean there's just so many we haven't even talked about the the cinematography really but just in the storytelling there's what four stories within this story um yeah not a whole lot of different sets i mean pretty much the film takes place at the mansion where the party was james whale's house brendan fraser's uh, camper or uh, caravan, uh, possibly for our UK listeners, um, <laughs> and the diner where he picks up uh, waitresses to prove his masculinity. Wait, well, waitress, any patron, female mm-hmm. patron, yeah, yeah. It, it's where he cruises for chicks, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, 
I don't think it's him trying to, you know, prove his masculinity. I, I think he's relatively comfortable in his masculinity after a certain point of being around James Whale's character or James Whale, the character of James Whale in this. I, I don't really feel that he's trying to prove anything. I think he's just trying to get laid. I kind of feel like after he ran out on James Whale, yeah. that was the one time that he was trying to prove he wasn't gay or something. I'll, like I'll that. give you that. I, yeah. I'll give you that one. That exactly. One. Yeah. Yeah. But other other times where he's picking up on, on ladies, I think he's just trying to get laid. Yeah, yeah. I, he has a basic life. You know, he works, he drinks, he fucks. I mean, that's what well, we all want out well, of he does manual labor. He, he, he does manual labor all day, so he's this big, beefy dude. Of course he's going to use that to his advantage and pick up ladies. <laughs> I, I've never been a big, beefy dude, so I, I would have to <laughs> theorize. <laughs> I'm sure. Hey, I'm just putting myself in the character's eyes there. That's that's the way I see it. I mean, if he's going to work all day and be sweaty and, you know, build up the muscle, he might as well use it to his advantage and see if he can actually pick up ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they sort of... I, I wouldn't say they start over, but they start over with a better understanding of each other. I, I mean, I really don't think that James... Until later on, I don't think Whale really does anything inappropriate and... When we find out why he did the inappropriate bit. Right. I, you know, it's still a violation of a relationship, but it's, we'll get to that. So they do the the party. I, he invites uh, Fraser to sort of be his arm candy and to give <laughs> him, you know, give him an experience that he's never had before, but really wants to make all his exes and all his closeted friends kind of jealous, I think, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. Absolutely. What, what better arm candy than Brendan Fraser at the height of his physicality, if you will? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got his. <laughs> and it's even better when he's like, this is my gardener. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love gardens. I love gardens. <laughs> he's never met a princess, only queens. Oh. I, that's the best line. That's the best line. <laughs> He's just so awesome in this. I mean, Magneto has some definite magnetism. Uh -huh. uh, maybe I'll put in a, a rim shot right there. Phrasing? I didn't say job. God damn it! Who the hell drilled my box? So, we're just done with phrasing, right? That's not a thing anymore? <laughs> Alright, go ahead. And then he, he gets to hang out with Elsa and Boris because... Lo and behold, he got his invitation from the uh, the guy. This is sort of a side note, but was James Whale a footman? Because he seemed like really ready and raring to have that guy take his shoes off. The guy he got to strip for him. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but he did look awfully excited when he, the guy took his shoes and socks off. I think it was more just the delight of, oh, he's actually going to follow through with this, I think. Okay. Yeah. I think <laughs> Game because, on. Game because, on. Challenge yeah, accepted. <laughs> I think it was just because the kid was willing to yeah, actually play the game with him that that's what he got excited about is that he, he got one to bite, if you will. Mm. He got the invitation from him. I, I don't know if that guy ever had a name, but it's definitely not written uh, down by me. College yeah, student. The stripping college student. <laughs> exactly. Got him, and I'm I'm assuming well, he was a super fan. He he told him that right off that it wasn't just the novelty of getting the 
the reunion that he was actually a big fan of him, but do you think it was a continuation of his article and slightly self-serving, or do you think it was just him actually trying to do something good and that's why when everything kind of goes to shit that it's supposed to be worse since it was all well-intended? I would imagine um, that he's using the fact that he has this college article to fulfill this lifelong dream of getting this whole cast back together again because he is such a fan of the show or of the, the Bride of Frankenstein movie itself. I, I imagine he's kind of, you know, it's a it's like sort of a hodgepodge of both things. Right. I'm good with that. And is, you know, doing his whatever kind of press job or uh, kooker, you know, Gets uh, gets an extra, oh, this picture from the garden party, you know, in Hedda Hopper's columns or whatever <laughs> other Hollywood press. Hey, come on, he's kind of doing his job there. That's, yeah. the, that's the, you know, he uses that as an excuse, I think. But, and so it is productive, but, you know, he's just a fan. That's really, I think, first a thing on his mind. Yeah, just getting to beat the cast would be the the big coup, and then getting the photo and a little bit more for the article would help a little bit, but mostly I think it's because he's the fan and he wants to meet them all. I I like to think that about that guy, too. He seemed like one of the nice... Well, there weren't really many shitheads in this movie, but um, he seemed like one of the most well-intended, innocent people in the movie. Uh, Yeah. So then the rain comes, and... With the rain comes a World War II flashback about what was Bernard, Bernard, Bennett. Sometimes it's hard for me to differentiate from the the British accent what the name of the young private that uh, James Whale remembers from World War II. Um, I'm looking on IMDb. Barnett? Barnett. Maybe. Maybe. Hold on. I'm looking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Barnett is the only one that I see. So, yeah, that must be it. Uh, And they eventually get back to Whale's house because the storm's getting worse and worse. And they start drinking and opening their their hearts to each other at the table. And is it down? I can't remember if it was downstairs or when the conversation moves upstairs that Whale divulges the the story of Barnett. But um, he was uh, a lover in the foxhole. Yeah. Uh, Phrasing. Or is that yes. just a young person that uh, looked up to him that he tried to take care of? No. No, I think it was a lover. And he died uh, just out of reach, but always within sight was what stood out from that gruesome story. You see him every day, but you can't, couldn't do anything. He's alone and rotting on the wire. Is that too dark or is that similar to anybody else's interpretation? That's kind of how I saw it. Yeah, same with me. And then Fraser does the uh, draw me like one of your French girls uh, <laughs> moves. Uh, you wanted to paint me like a statue, I think is what he says. And he drops trow. There's a very important component to this story that we're kind of uh, skipping over here, too. Uh, James Whale at this point had had very serious health issues Mm. like a series of strokes and he was having a lot of headaches and he was on a lot of different medication and his brain would kind of sort of fluctuate in and out of like not necessarily consciousness but like he had a real hard time with perception of what was actually happening versus getting lost in his memories and various things like that and while he's telling this story i think he is having a bit of a health issue here 
um, with with his with his mind as well while he's delving into the past. And at this point, I think Brendan Fraser had seen or his character Clayton had seen one or two episodes like this while being with the man and kind of would try and help him through it. And this one was kind of coupled with a very dark, uh, foreboding, deep depression that he's suffering with from this health concerns and these health issues. And so it all kind of comes to a head. And this is like a, this this draw me like one of your French girls thing that he does, uh, Clayton does here, is in an effort to basically offer some comfort to this very ill, very, like his health is failing and he's he's pretty much on the verge of death at this point in his life because it, these headaches are getting worse. The problems with the strokes or whatever else that's happening is becoming more and more uh, infringing on his ability to move and speak and things like that. So I think this is Brendan Fraser's character, Clayton, offering him not necessarily one last thrill, but he's like trying to give him a, a diverge, like a like a, a diversion from this or, or something to, to think about other than what's happening to his physicality. So it's it's more so than... I don't I don't see it more I see it more so as a, a way of him trying to offer some comfort, I guess is what I'm trying to say, to James Whale as his health is failing, like, you know, it's it's more along those lines to me than any kind of it doesn't really feel sexualized on the part of Clayton in any way, shape or form. I think he just wants to he cares about the man and he wants to give him I don't want to say one last throw because that makes it sound so cheap, but like one he wants last... to just give him, a, yeah, right, diversion, but it's also, why don't, you know, it's kind of like, why don't you, let's think about something positive, something that you love, you know, right, stop, exactly. you know, get, get your mind off of, you know, the health, right. I'll pose for you, I know you've been wanting this to happen, so why don't you draw me like one of your French girls? <laughs> <laughs> You're being very vulnerable with me. So I'm going to try to match that openness and make myself vulnerable too. And it's not necessarily sexual, but it's, I mean, they have increased their emotional bond throughout the movie too. Right. Well, and one thing that they didn't touch on is, you know, with all of the health issues that Whale was having at this point in his life, he had actually gone through series of electric shock therapy. Oh. Um, yeah, because he was having a certain level of depression because of, you know, because of his other his health issues, and I don't know if the um, that that was supposed to do anything if 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 they scientifically saw that oh it might be tr- used as a treatment after a stroke or if it was just the emotional um, kind of depression, but he had been going through that so. I don't necessarily think that they had to bring it up in the movie, but it definitely, knowing that, it it goes along to me that, you know, he has all these reactions to electricity and, you know, the with, like, the lightning and, um, you know, and these kind of flashbacks to war. Mm-hmm. It kind of just goes along together, in my opinion. And I think uh, when his doctor was initially telling him about what was going on in his brain after the stroke, when mm-hmm. he asked about, it's degenerative, I won't get better, there's basically an electrical storm in my brain. Yeah, electricity and storms become a very big proponent of the storytelling in this. That's I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and I mean, it definitely ties back to the actual Frankenstein 
monster creation, you know, and the bride creation with the electricity there. If they added the reality of the electroshock, I feel like maybe the crowd might be like, okay, now you're just fucking with it's me. It's too much. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe. But I don't know. But it's, this is the penultimate point of the movie. Gets out. Everything just sort of mixes together. Uh, Brendan Fraser, draw me like one of your little French girls. Here, put on this gas mask. Um, right, you're too pretty. We can't have you look so perfect. There's got to be something monstrous about you. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's disoriented. Whale is sort of stroking. <laughs> Phrasing. Having a stroke. I don't want to say he's stroking because he's... <laughs> Phrasing? Are we not doing phrasing? <laughs> I was like, he's stroking Brendan Fraser's what? What's your yeah. noun you're going to put in there? <laughs> Sorry, that's where my mind thought you were going. <laughs> well, though, I believe... For the record, either way, I'm into it. He's <laughs> stroking his muscles? <laughs> he, yeah, he, he calls it his prick, I believe, when he actually does yeah. get that stroke in. Um, yeah. This is is this the point where he says, "Do you believe in mercy killings?" Or did that just happen moments before? I think I think it was a couple moments leading up to this, and then you, I don't know. Yeah. I always started getting a little bit nervous because of how Fraser had reacted to nothing earlier. I was like, "Oh, this is this is probably going to have something to do with that mercy killing uh, comment." And then, uh, <clears throat> well, he pretty much like jumps on his back, like, and grabs a hold of him, and he's like riding on him while he's wearing the gas mask, and he's kind of out of it. And I think he's having a hard time breathing because it's one of those old school World War II gas masks, and he's World drunk. War, I think it's the World, World War One ones. World yeah, one, I'm sorry. I misspoke. Yeah, that's but okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like one of those really old school gas masks, which probably really didn't work and just basically made you slowly suffocate. So he's got that strapped to his head. He's drunk. He's got, what, just a towel around him at this point. Yeah. Very loosely. And so, yeah. And James well pretty much jumps on his back and then starts whispering in his ear and, and getting kind of very overtly sexual towards him as he's reaching down. And he does it very slowly, but he does actually get a hold of the member, if you will. <laughs> the monster's member. And, yeah. And he does that very intentionally. James Whale at this point is banking on and hoping that Clayton's reaction that he had earlier that was very violent towards nothing would make this action and what he's doing here send him over the edge and actually would have him kill him. And the reaction that he gets is not exactly what he wants. No. Um, well, I mean, I guess, God, to get literal, I guess, you know, burning alive and stuff like that would be worse. But who wants to be beaten to death? That's just... Yeah. Extreme desperation, I guess, because um, he doesn't know what else to do. Well, he was, and he was already in pretty much constant pain. Yeah, I don't know if he necessarily was hoping on being beaten to death, or just maybe that in a rage that something would happen that would get it over with quickly. But he definitely wanted to die here. He wanted Brendan Fraser's character Clayton to kill him in response to having him grab his junk and kind of jump on his back and take advantage of him being in this not a towel and a gas mask outfit i think he does say i want you to snap my neck yeah and he does he at the brendan fraser pretty much reacts the way that anyone who has an unwanted sexual advance like that happened to them would react he just tosses him off of him mm -hmm. i don't remember him actually getting any more violent than that at this point and he's more sad than anything that this would happen and 
I remember him saying, like, James Wells' character says something along the lines of, I touched your prick. How would you ever live with yourself, you know, knowing that that happened or something like that? Like, he's trying to antagonize him and trying to goad him into that. And all I really remember seeing is just sadness from Clayton's face that the man would be that desperate that he would try and make his own friend, you know, that, that they are at this point, beat him to death or snap his neck or hurt him just to end his suffering and just the sadness that comes from that. This scene is like, it's almost like a death of a friendship, but at the same time, it, it increases in strength of their bonds as friends because of the way that the way that he wanted the reaction to happen becomes the exact opposite, where he wants to take care of him and try and make him better, you know, after this happens. It's so heartbreaking and yet so heartwarming all at once. And it just it crushes your soul, but gives you some hope, <laughs> you know? Very well said. <clears throat> I find myself saying that to both you guys a lot. Uh, both you, uh, both <laughs> you folks. Yeah. Uh, I believe Vanessa is more deserving of it than my ranting ass, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just letting you rant away right now. Uh, no, <laughs> no I, I think say- we're, we're actually all pretty much in alignment on this. That's why I'm kind of letting you go. <laughs> this is why I heavily edit my show because I do rant if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Your rants are welcome here, sir. (laughs) And miss. And it's the only place that the only place they are openly welcome. (laughs) Everybody else is like, shut the fuck up, Psyops. Well, welcome to the bomb shelter, my friend. (laughs) So he's he's sad and he leaves him there on the floor. Or no, does he put him in bed? He sort of cleans him up and puts puts him him in bed. bed. Yeah, he puts him in bed. He tucks him in. (laughs) Tucks him in for the night. Forever. Which is the part that makes it heartwarming while you're basically wanting to openly weep, feeling so horrible for what's happening to James Whale right now. Yeah. The slow snuffing of such a bright fire that's throughout the film. You know, such a... I hate that I call him Magneto sometimes because there is like a (laughs) a magnetism (laughs) to James Whale and definitely Ian McKellen's portrayal of him. And there's just the... the decline, I guess. It, the the movie's a slow decline and deterioration, much like the whole nobody asked to be born thing. And the, uh, oh, this pool goes to waste, I never get in it myself moment of foreshadowing from the beginning comes to yeah. be. Fraser wakes up, or Clayton, not Fraser Crane. Um, <laughs> that would be a whole different movie. <laughs> And the touching the prick scene probably would have ended vastly different, too. Yes. Yes. And there would have at least been one or two soliloquies. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Very politely declining. I'm sorry, (laughs) sir. You completely misread the entire situation. I don't feel that this is apropos in any way, shape, or form. I would very kindly (laughs) ask you to just step away right now and remove thy hand from my nethers. Good day, sir. I say, good day, sir. <laughs> I said, good day, sir. Are we sharing a brain right now? <laughs> Why yes. not? I share it with so many other podcasters. Okay. <laughs> Reaching synchronicity. So Hannah is kicking Fraser Crane out of the house. He crashed the party and was passed out on the, on the couch. Or Hannah's cooking, cooking. That would be a different movie. Hannah is kicking... Clayton out of the house because ex-boyfriend is coming over for brunch? Yeah. David Lewis. He David said Lewis. at the garden party, I'll be over for breakfast. Yeah. 
and nobody can find James Whale. Then uh, Fraser, Brandon Fraser, gets the the envelope and starts looking around. And this is some really, like you said, he really did all his good acting in this movie. But you know, he just bolts out of the house. There is the master, face down in the pool that he never gets into. Didn't go to waste. He used it for one last purpose, and he just sort of if looks like ask, he's, huh? If you ask me, drowning to death is significantly less painful, and you know, suffer significantly less than being beaten to death. Yeah, I, I would imagine. And he's in his pajamas. Uh, maybe he overdosed on his medication, like he sort of hinted at early, early on in the film. I think, unless I'm thinking of another movie where somebody kills himself. Uh, but he looks like he's dancing in the water. Like one last bit of elegance. Yeah. And that's... But my is the fact that they pull him out of the pool and and so then you have Hannah and Clay there and Hannah's like, put him back in the pool. He'll keep better. I guess don't, don't disrespect <laughs> Mr. Jimmy. Put him back in the pool. He'll keep better. I mean, I'm just like, I love it. I love it. It was just like that little bit of humor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's actually logical, yes, honestly, but a little morbid. But that, that that spicing of dark humor is perfect for uh, tribute for James Whale because dark Absolutely. humor is was his bread and butter in all of his films. Absolutely. And I think he even something that's in... so outrageous. And it says so much about again goes back to that that Hannah character and that kind of, of archetype female dark comic archetype that was in so many of you know whales films often played by una o'connor <laughs> yes <laughs> with her crazy wailing voice i know and um they're also they want to cover up that uh clayton was there so fewer questions would be asked and that's when they sh uh shoot to the emotional part of frankenstein where the monster meets the blind man and makes his first friend, right? That's Bride of Frankenstein, but yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me. Thank you for calling me on that. And I am a monster, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, Clayton, who didn't know what he was going to do with his life, um, who he was told he wasn't boyfriend material, he wasn't husband material, he was going to do nothing. He's got the wife and the kid and the suburban life that a lot, especially in the the 50s and 60s was super ideal i guess in some ways it still is idealized but sharing his love of horror with his kid and then he goes out into the rain and walks like frankenstein and misses his friend friend is there anything we missed from that part of the discussion it's actually bride of frankenstein that the two of them are watching which is kind of how he first bonded without really bonding with James Whale is it was on TV and they're watching it simultaneously on that airing and James is having a couple of drinks and he laughs about Una and has a good time where she's wailing about and being silly and just thinks she's just the funniest thing ever and you kind of they, they do juxtapose that so The Bride of Frankenstein is the film that he kind of felt the most close and, and bonded with James over and now his own daughter he's kind of passing that that bonding feeling of this film and what it can create on. And in a way he's kind of keeping his, his love for his friend alive by having this, you know, moment he's sharing with his child, which 
is actually quite beautiful to me. And you hate yeah. kids. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that says something. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Fair <enough>. Vanessa. Yes. <laughs> Was uh, um, for that for that bit. I, I if if I can, I'm going to keep you guys for a little bit longer for some more discussion. We still have to uh, have court story. I'll keep it as brief as I can. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. the movie is, it definitely has that, you have that that sense of sadness with the suicide and, you know, and everything leading up to it. Uh, a certain amount of hope at the end and still the memory lives on. Um, which is also the wonderful thing about art. You know, any artist lives on and as long as their art is after, you know, still around after they are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't have much more to say about that part. No, Particularly cool. for horror films, because nothing else from this era that uh, exists besides the horror lives on. I mean, you name me one other film from 31 or 35 that Universal put out that anybody's going to be able to just know the name right off the top of their head as much as they would know Bride of Frankenstein or Frankenstein or even The Invisible Man. It's so right. much ingrained in our culture. So this man's legacy is bigger than all of the other people that may have been bigger stars at the time or bigger well-known directors. And well, this this man, Clayton, had a friendship with him. And so their friendship being tied to these movies, that sort of lives on as well by passing it on with his daughter too. It's, uh, you know, and considering, I mean, again, James Whale, 20 films, you know, most of them weren't horror, but what people remember is the horror. And it, and even Showboat that he did is supposed to be the definitive version, film version of Showboat. But basically, once the remake came around, it was kind of pushed, nearly pushed out of existence. So many people just do know James Whale's horror. They don't necessarily remember his other stuff. And what an amazing director he was, just overall. Um, I, I was, and I was going to ask you guys, how many of his films have you actually seen? Just the horror output. Like, all the universal horror that he's done is okay. the main, main thing. If you count Old Dark House in there, then just still just the old, the old <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, the, I'm, I'm the same. I was going through his list of movies, and there are ones that I've definitely heard of, but I, I feel like just his, just his horror also. In yeah, all fairness I, to James Whale, though, that's all I care about for anybody is their horror. <laughs> well, <laughs> did he direct yeah. Dracula's Daughter or just work on it? He just worked on it. Okay. Um, so yeah, the the ones that are sticking out are Invisible Man, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula's Daughter, um, old, which he did. Old direct. Dark House. Yeah. yeah. But <clears throat> I mean, I've also seen Showboat and uh, Man with the Iron Mask. And those are now. I mean, I I I want us to. I want to see more of his work, but it's it's just not that easily available. Yeah, you know. Um, which and it and it goes back to the interview with the art student or whatever at the beginning of the movie that well, it's your horror movies that you're going to be remembered for. Not to say he hasn't done didn't do other great work. It's just that was where he really just. That's what, where he shined. 
It's where everybody shines. Horror is where it's at, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try and disparage film in general that's not horror, but film in general that's not horror is just, you know, not horror. So, <laughs> um, I mean, that's what's going to, I mean, horror fans are much more rabid, and it's more so than any other genre of film. A horror fanatic will be like, I need to see every horror film that's ever been made. And that's why they live on. Because every generation will go back to older and older films. It's very rare that a horror fan won't want to watch everything and won't want to see like even like the silent films that were made by, uh, you know, like the first Frankenstein silent film that like Edison made, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. Like, right. if it's out there, we want to find it. I mean, I'm, I'm maybe that's just me, but I, I feel that that's the way the horror fans are. And there may be a rare horror fan that only wants to watch like the newer films, but they still journey backward and they still try to find where the influences of the stuff they like now come from it's just sometimes some of us just do it more rapidly in, in our youth than <laughs> what others would do but it happens you know and right and i don't know too many people who love comedy that are like you know i need to go back and find comedies all the way back to the silent era i know they exist i have friends that do that but it's much more rare than even a casual horror fan still wants to see everything true true that seems to be my experience as well and that's why a lot of the older horror movies are restored more often, it seems, than... I was going to yeah, say Buster they know Keaton, we're going to buy Buster, it. Yeah, Buster Keaton stuff's <laughs> all around still. But, you know, the the people that you've never heard of, you know, there's not the greatest well, silent You're not comedies. watching Fatty Arbuckle. <laughs> not watching Fatty Arbuckle. I mean, right. for multiple reasons. But, <laughs> you know, people not watching that. But, talk about scandals, but um, ending a career. But... You know, for all accounts, he was incredibly talented at his work. People, they're, I mean, but he, again, didn't have a prolific career like some of his contemporaries. And scan, that scandal partly affected that. Not, But he didn't walk away from things like James Whale did. And it wasn't, with James Whale, it wasn't like a specific, like an actual sex scandal. It was just, just him not giving a fuck anymore and just not wanting to play the game of... Oh, I have to hide who I am. Mm -hmm. Tired of the bullshit. Right, exactly. Which makes his story that much more tragic, that just because he wanted to be who he was, he had to basically walk away from his career. It just breaks your heart. Right, right, right. If I didn't put him in earlier, we're going to play uh, some promos for... And maybe if I did. <laughs> even, even if I did play promos earlier, we're going to take a little break here and play some promos from for some shows that are awesome and you should definitely go listen to as soon as this one's done with and then we'll be back for wrapping up and court story and vanessa if you have a story and some other things like that did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds oh, necrophilia. Oh, oh, oh. it's a dead issue man don't don't push it Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this? No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. It's unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. 
Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. And we're back. Almost like we didn't go anywhere. Almost. It's amazing. <laughs> so, Court, we've been waiting since you hinted at it when we first started talking about this. Please tell us your gods and monsters story. Well, as I mentioned before, when I first watched the movie, it was because it was the story of James Whale. It was the story of this director at the end of his life. And I, I knew that it had stuff to do with Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, the Invisible and being the monster kid fanatic that I am, that lured me in and I wanted to know more about it. And it was like, hey, it's coming up on cable. Let's watch this. I know that the release date says 98, but I feel like it was much earlier than that, that I had actually seen it on cable. And I know it was released by Showtime. So I'm, I know that like it says November 4th was released to like theaters and stuff. But mm-hmm. I feel like it was pretty much either my senior year of high school which would have been 98 or, you know, just after high school, maybe over the summer time frame of 98, like before I went into into college in the fall, somewhere around there is when I actually caught this on cable. Now, before this, I had had that inclination, um, you know, growing up in the 90s, I'd had that inclination that homophobia just didn't seem right. It didn't sit right with me, but I'd never really been. I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So if there were anyone that was actually homosexual, they were hiding it for their own safety because it was a very closed minded town. And that kind of knee-jerk reaction that Brendan Fraser's Clayton character, uh, Brendan Fraser's character of Clayton has, is very pretty much how the town I grew up in would be, where is immediately it would just become this thing where this person needs to be ousted, they need to be cast aside, and just so much unjustifiable hate for no reason towards homosexuality. Now, as I mentioned, I had seen and been exposed to other materials, various bands that I liked or, you know, musicians and things like that, you know, but it would never became a thing where seeing the repercussions of that type of just unjustifiable hate has never been something that I had been exposed to. And so watching the film in that scene, in that, that moment where he goes and flies off the handle, um, my reaction to it was like, he's a human being, leave him alone. What the fuck is wrong with you? 
And it's pretty much at that point where using those phrases, using those words and using that hate um, spewed out, like even jokingly felt immediately the most horrible thing you could do. You know, it just felt like it was just so wrong. And uh, this uh, this movie is definitely something that opened my mind up and made me look differently at how that is and, and how to be. Uh, and it just basically made it look like, you know, that curb. I always talk about it, you know. It's like maybe six inches high. Mm-hmm. And why could why could none of us ever step over it before? And that's what this film did. It It just like... What's the phrase from, uh, it's, uh, Chocoboku from, uh, Gross Point Blank, a swift spiritual kick to the head, (laughs) you know? And then seeing the rest of it where he gets over that, that homophobia that's just this ingrained thing in him and he comes back and they become friends, like, it, it so changed my perspective. And even so on the films, because... Seeing the behind the scenes that are supposed to be taking place in Bride of Frankenstein, where they're talking about how Pretorius and Frankenstein were lovers, and you know, this other dimension of these things that were laid into James Whale's work and made me think completely differently about it, like, you know, the invisible man and, and like it started making me look at films more so than just blood breasts and beasts that I've always been, you know, <laughs> like like let's give me some gore, give me some horror, give me some fuel for fire and you know just let let's just go and, and have some good time with this it started making me try to look at subtext it started making me look at more behind the scenes and and kind of opened me up to character motivations and pathos and feelings and emotions which kind of were devoid of me at that point i mean i was basically a burgeoning sociopath that really couldn't make connections in any way shape or form now did this movie fully open me up in that that manner? No, but it it opened me up in the idea that we're all human beings, and these labels, these uh, these things that we put on each other, and these hurtful, hateful words that we use to justify this fear. I mean, that's really what it is. It's just this fear of the unknown, this fear of the other. Seeing that juxtaposed in reality. To how it happens with Frankenstein's monster was that serious, swift, spiritual kick to the head. And it just like, it was like a whole world just got opened up. And that's my story for the film. Thanks, dude. Thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, no problem. So James, yeah, I know it's a, it's a conversation killer. I'm sorry. No, it, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, it, it's a conversation starter. And that's, that's what I'm kind of trying to do with this show. I know even if I piss people off and I lose listeners, which hasn't happened yet. Um, I just, I like these conversation starters. I like hearing everybody's point of view. Um, hopefully at some point there will be somebody that disagrees with me or us generally that will want to have a conversation. I like that you felt comfortable enough to, you know, open up like that and, to talk about some sensitive stuff here it definitely seeing the film definitely changed my perspective on how to react whenever someone makes an advance in some way shape or form you know because i i had been hit on since then by a gay man um apparently i'm candy to some of them because of how i look with the shaved head but um it has happened um i've actually had a very aggressive drag queen at a coffee shop like really come on to me 
before. And because of my thought process that got sparked in that, that swift kick to the head that happened from watching Gods and Monsters, you know, I just kind of like looked at it more of the perspective of, golly, you think I'm that good looking? Really? <laughs> you know, and be like, I'm sorry, I'm not interested, but man, am I so flattered, you know? So, and I kind of credit this film for that, like to have me look at it from that perspective of, even though you may not be into what this person is offering sexually, you could still be flattered and treat them like a fucking human being if you do get hit on. Now, granted, if you just come running up and grabbing somebody by the crotch, that's sexual assault in any language in any any world, <laughs> you know. So don't yeah. go that route. But unless you're planning on but, running you know, for president, exactly. Yeah, but then apparently, as long as it's a woman and you're running for president, you're totally okay with it, so long as you have tic tacs. Because well, also, you know, we and we women, we really don't count. I mean, come on. I'm sorry, so I wasn't listening because you're a woman and you're talking. Exactly. <laughs> that hurt me. That hurt my soul that you said that, Darren, even jokingly. <laughs> uh, you know that's not true. But, right. You right. know, it is true in a lot of a lot of places, like yes. the Hollywood of old days and Hollywood of now. But um, politics is very much a boys' club, and people are trying to break through those barriers. James Whale died in May 1957, I think. And yes. uh, uh, was it 10 years later? In, oh no, uh, almost 12 years later, 12 years and a month, basically, uh, June 28th, 1969, the, there was a police raid at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. And that was the precursor to... The Stonewall Uprising, the Stonewall Rebellion. Some people call it the Stonewall Riots. I'm. Uh, That's my preferred term. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, it was having met having met some of the veterans of it, it. It is a fucking riot. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, it's just a. I, I mean, I've been involved. I, I came out when I was 19. That was 92, and and that was in, and I lived in Alabama at the time, and and then after I was in Alabama, I lived in Cincinnati for a while. But now I live in New York, in all those different places. I've been politically active in the LGBTQ um, like civil rights uh, kind of front, and you know it's. I, I, I was going to say that that definitely that it definitely affected like how I came to this movie. Um, I, that's part of why I sought Gods and Monsters out uh, because I wanted to see more of basically the ho queer Hollywood's history. Um, but in my activism, as I've come here to New York, once you start meeting some of those people who've been in the game of activism for ages in any front but particularly with stonewall it's um you realize how it really wasn't that long ago and it was a pretty fucking serious situation i mean it was life and death for some people then it is still for some people actually in this day and age even in new york city i mean the amount of hate crimes that we still have based on sexual orientation or you know gender identity it's it's kind of ridiculous um you know we're supposed to be more enlightened than everyone else uh ha 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 i you know but 
Um, you know, it just since well, since November and forty five was elected, that's definitely affected things. But even just this past entire presidential campaign, you started seeing so many more hate crimes rise um, here, and you know it's you you start seeing people like okay, we're having to take you know, self-defense, so many of us feel like we're having to take self-defense classes again, <laughs> you know, like, because this is an issue. We're going backward in time as far as our safety goes. And so much of the LGBT community, LGBTQ community, I think, became complacent after gay marriage was legalized. I, for one, because I'm a pain in the ass for the establishment. Um, I, that day, there was like a massive rally actually, actually outside of the Stonewall Inn. And me, I mean, I should have been like, ooh, that's fantastic. I was pissed off actually because it was, <laughs> um, because here it was the big pride weekend here in New York. And that day was the trans day of action. And we, I was marching with the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, um, named after Sylvia Rivera, who is a veteran of Stonewall. Um, and I was, you know, I had actually taken off work that day to be part of this march. And we were marching, like part of the route was right by Stonewall. Well, so much of the press was diverted from us because of the gay marriage being legalized, which... Again, it's a great thing, but that's just a tip of the iceberg when you're talking about the rights of the LGBTQ community. I mean, trans people definitely have a certain level of, you know, heightened physical harassment that gays and lesbians don't necessarily, I mean, they may not have to face. Um, but the discrimination is still there when you're talking about housing and in employment and I wasn't trying to that day I had people like friends who were texting me they're like why can't you just be happy for a change I'm like I am happy but we have so much fucking work left to do and that's one thing that you know I've just seen over the years and in multiple you know places that you know there are so many different components to equality and civil rights. I guess trying to tie it back to Stonewall at the fact of, yeah, you had people who were just fighting to be, just live their lives as they wanted to. And that's, again, James Whale, he was doing, trying to do the same exact thing. He was able to at least retire and wasn't necessarily forced out because of a scandal. And he was able to afford to live you know, comfortably to a certain extent. But there are so many people who've been forced out of employment because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Um, I've actually had my job threatened before because of it. Um, once I had an employer um, no, find out I was gay, they were, they were, my job was threatened. Um, not a great position to be in and especially you know when you're working class or, or you know middle class um it's yeah can't believe we still have to fight for this shit uh 
I mean, really, it's just, it's preposterous to me that we still have to fight for this shit. It does at least feel that the current administration and the old hat, that this feels like their last gasp, which is why they're so desperate to do all this stuff to try and secure some kind of legacy of their horse shit. The things that they're trying to drag back into the Stone Age of our society. Right. It, feel, it feels like this is their last desperate gasp breath that they have. It really does, because on the whole, the the rest of our society, like the, the youth, if you will, the people that are coming up now, you know, even in our relative age groups, I mean, I know we're all kind of different ages here, but um, like our generation, if you will, um, not necessarily the baby boomers, but, you know, we're, we're like just under them. And then the generation younger than us, we all kind of want the same thing where we just want everybody to be able to live their lives and be happy. We truly want equality. Like it's there, it's on the horizon. And this baby boomer group and the the older white privilege generations that we're railing against, this is their last gasp. This is, the, I mean, they're dying off and they're trying so desperately to hold on to what last little bit of power that they have. And I think in doing so, they have kind of galvanized this sort of contingent of people that were resting on their laurels and were just kind of like a sleeping giant and uh, you see that in the protests you see that in the activism and you see it in so many people now interested in politics that would have never tried it in their youth are now doing it and so i just feel like it's gonna get squashed and i feel like there's just gonna be a chance it's just surviving this sort of revolution that feels like it's coming you know and, and just getting it to push forward forward I'm, I'm hoping that we can finally just put this to bed it's just this this little last bit of everybody being equal regardless of orientation gender uh transgender all of this stuff that is just labels that we put on human beings that just want to live if we can just get rid of that and just let everybody live everything else is going to fall into place and it just feels like it's so fucking close and that's the part that is so frustrating with this administration and with our current state of affairs in America, because we were, it felt like we were so close. It was like, it was almost like the wave speech that you get from Hunter S. Thompson, where you can kind of see the high water mark where the crest rolled back. But the thing is, is just because the wave went out doesn't mean it's not coming back around. You know, like the tide's still there. We just, we're just in the middle of the first wave with that high water mark. And I just feel like eventually we're going to knock that wall over and it's going to be there. And I really want to see it not only in my lifetime, but within the next 10 years, if not sooner. It just feels like it, it really does. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I know logically we've made progress. And I've seen that, like, just even the difference in rallies I've gone to 25 years ago compared to now. I mean, I... Again, granted, I'm in a different city, but, you know, I, I remember the day where it was just like, okay, here I am at a, speaking at an LGBTQ, like, rights rally, and I'm come off stage, or even before I went on stage, actually, I was spat upon by people, had stuff thrown at me, you know, and it was also, that was even before I gave a speech, I could have come up there, been a cis straight woman and just pledged a lot, you know, a, you know, just been an ally. And that was all that was considered a bad thing, you know, in where I was living at the time. You don't 
get that so much. You don't get that to that degree now. I mean, but there's still, of course, those assholes out there. There's always going to be some asshole who's <laughs> just hateful for no reason. I mean, unfortunately, that's just the way people are. But I definitely feel their their numbers are dwindling. Um, and it, I don't feel it, like it seems like it's such a bad thing if someone is an ally, you know, a straight cis ally. I don't feel, I don't see those people getting the same kind of pushback as you used to see, you know, God, even 10 years ago. I mean, you have Ellen is like a, a highly rated talk show that so many people middle America watch, you know, even ones that are very legally anti-LGBTQ. Still, the fact that they will actually watch the show because Ellen's just a great entertainer to them. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. She came out on her show 20 years ago. I remember I when saw she that had her sitcom. When on. And, right? That was, I, cause I just saw, I just read something like that was just the 20th anniversary of that happening. And at that time, even her show ended up like low ratings dropped off. She ended up, the show ended up getting canceled and you could see maybe it was, or, you know, the timing wise, it was direct reaction to that. That's not the case now. So, you know, there's been progress and people attitudes changing. There's still a lot of it that I can't believe we're fucking having a fight for. I just, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> I yeah, just can't believe it's, it. It's fucking 2017, and we're still trying to fight for equal rights for women. And uh, oh yeah, so, I'd like, like to get paid that full dollar. Thank you. I'm, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Like you know, and it almost feels like this this current wave of nationalistic white nationalistic government, let's not even mince words, is trying to push back against equal rights that have already been secured for minorities, you know, and and they're just railing against women, minorities, and basically just trying to make the white male be this paragon of power that it's always been, and fuck that, man. It's You know, it's just so ridiculous that we're still fighting this same horse shit that we dealt with in the 50s, all these years later in 2017, I mean, it's mind-boggling that it's still going on. And if I had to pick one particular thing to blame it on, I'm going to say that religion. I mean, it's all been cloaked in that. It's all been justified by that. And that's the biggest problem that this country really has is everything else springs from Jesus said so. And they're just using that as an example and, and a way to rally up people that have no other way of really being put together or rallied together because they can't agree on anything else but Jesus said so. And that's fucking ridiculous and it angers me so much. I think it was Chuck Klosterman who said it in his uh, book about villainy that it may take and I, I, I'd like to believe this but I, I want to know what you guys think and I, uh, I think you kind of already spoke to this already but said even though history and everything is written by the winners ultimately even if it takes 70 to 100 years, that the winner is ultimately going to be the progressive because progressives evolve. And that's at the root of it is the evolution of an idea to go along with the evolution of society, whereas regressives have it easier because it's so simplistic that even though they do seem like they're winning right now, hopefully that holds true, that 
the winners are ultimately the progressives. See, that was a shitty thought. I, I interrupted Vanessa and you were going to say something. And... <laughs> no, I was merely going to I just state that, yes, so much of the, I guess, the pushback does seem to come from people who use religion as an excuse for their hatred. I don't, I don't understand that as, I mean, especially when, you know, if you go like, okay, theology-wise, like looking at words in the Bible, no, Jesus was not, where did he say that, you know, gay people were bad. He wasn't saying it. You know, I'm sorry. Is there some magical different Bible that I've never seen? But, like, I... <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, not saying I know everything about religion, but I did go to a Jesuit college and have to take theology classes, so <laughs> I've read quite a bit of it. Um, <laughs> multiple times. It, it comes from overreaching in the examples that are actually in the Bible and... Exactly. Basically taking an interpretation of an interpretation and then twisting it to your particular worldview. Um, Absolutely. That's, that's, that's where it comes from because they take some things from Leviticus, but they choose to ignore all of the other things that happen in Leviticus. Leviticus, like, right. Yeah, and, and some of the things that, like, some of the things in the New Testament that refer to quote-unquote sexual immorality, they just pigeonhole that and say, see, it's still part of it because they right. see homosexuality as quote-unquote sexual immorality. And if we really want to get down to it, there's basically really no proof that the actual Jesus that's in the Bible even existed or that there was a man at one point in time that they're basing this on because it's been reinterpreted so many times and then edited and then controlled by, get this, a white male establishment, <laughs> you know, with, with uh, King James and a lot of other people there and then with the Vatican in Italy. Oh, that's a big shock into yeah. what it is now. Those you know. books written by of the Bible written by women conveniently mm, pushed out. Mm, yeah. Let alone the thirteenth apostle Rufus, who was black, according to uh, of Dogma. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I I, I personally don't want to attack religion all the time. I'm lying. I do. Um, <laughs> but that's that's it's a mind virus that is used and it basically gets its hooks in people with, with fear, hate uh, and sexual desires and it basically takes everything that's your base human animalistic nature and it finds ways to make it supplanted and lie guilt over top of it and a bunch of other things so that you end up ha having this cycle of doing something in your nature like having sex and or having sexual desire or whatever or overindulging in food or, or whatever you might do that they're going to call it a sin because it's perfectly natural and something that happens you know as being an animal they take that they put guilt behind it and then make you come back to alleviate that guilt and then they know you're just going to do it again and then that's how they keep you hooked in now you have these people that cannot ha handle and cannot come to terms with their own sexuality they're going to wrap this around religion and use that to justify their hate when they're probably hiding in the closet and in denial themselves about who they really are and who they want to be. And if we had this conversation where more people were out and more people were just able to live their lives as they are, perhaps these people wouldn't go to these institutions, wouldn't go to this, this level. Perhaps they would find other people that are suffering from the same thing where they can't admit what they're feeling and what they're thinking and the attraction that they have because of where they are now. Like, let's say they grew up in the same kind of area that I might have where under no circumstances that it's such a horrible thing that, you know, that homosexuality is this horrible sin that 
an entire community in this small rural area would just have that attitude towards it. And so they're terrified to be who they are. But if they can just get out and escape or if they can just get information, whether it be through the Internet now or just a movie, you know, anything that could just let them know, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, there's absolutely nothing. It's those people that are the problem that are trying to tell you that there's something wrong with you. You're not doing anything wrong, you know, and as long as you're adults with consent and you have all that going on, you're perfectly fine with what you want to do. You know, no matter how kinky you want to get, as long as there's as long as there's consent, as long as you're adults, you're good. And like if we can get that message out there, you know, that sexuality is healthy, even though it may feel naughty. And if you want it to be naughty, to feel naughty for the uh, the joy of it feeling naughty. Great. Fucking go for that. That guilt become part of it in, in that cycle where you end up supplanting who you are as an individual you know like that's the hardest hurdle for a lot of people to get over and then when you finally look, look down at it it's a curve less than six inches high and once you step over it you don't that religion has no sway over you know there's no reason to feel that way there's no reason to supplant an entire group of people just because they don't match up to the idealized vision that might have been put into a book that was written in the bronze age for Christ's sakes yeah uh, at this point uh, speaking of youths feeling isolated and everything i'd like to give a shout out to one of my lo- not it's not mine it's it's local to me um the kaleidoscope youth center here in columbus ohio they do a, a lot of outreach for at, at risk teens and allies and community organization and uh we've, there's a stonewall columbus here uh either of you want to give a shout out to any uh if you want to continue the fight if you want to be a good ally uh or a good member of the human race. Anything that sticks out to you guys that it's not hard to find local organizations even in a town like where, even in a town like where I live here in Omaha, it's really not that hard. I mean, you you just basically do a quick search and if you want to get involved with just human rights in general. And I mean, the internet is a wonderful tool as well. I mean, what we're talking like you do the Southern Poverty Law Center, you could get working with them. Um that's one of the first things that I thought of. Uh, the civil rights movement or the new civil rights movement might be one to look into as well. But, I mean, in, locally there's individual, you know, transgender or LGBTQ rights groups that you can find and you can activate your your desire to help with them. Or just, hell, find the pride parade whenever it comes around and just jump in. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and just be like... Hey guys, what the hell can I do to help? You know, I mean, like we queers, probably... we queers throw awesome parades. Okay. Yes. No, it's always fun. I yeah. love going to Columbus Pride. Uh, I usually, <laughs> all my lesbian friends get me really drunk, and then we just go have fun. Uh, so right around now, when you're listening to this episode, if you're listening close to when it comes out. Look for your local pride parade and either go have fun with people that you probably have a lot of friends or if you don't have any friends, go and make some. The only negativism I've ever experienced at a pride parade was when I was leaving. A bunch of 15-year-olds got dropped off by the church bus with their stupid signs <laughs> getting ready to protest. And, uh, I, well, I don't, I don't want to say I'm not proud of it, but yeah, I cussed them out, told them to go home. <laughs> Like you both said, go to Pride. Uh, it's a really good time, I I think. Um, 
Vanessa, I'm I'm speaking over you. Um, again. That's okay. No, 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 no. I, I no. That's a, a great place to start because also, you know, they always they usually have festivals or something afterwards. You know, like a street fair type thing. If you want to get involved, they're going to be booths from your local organizations there. Um, if you have, I want to mention if you have um, a family member that you that is uh, queer that you want to support, you maybe don't know how. P flag is a a uh, great resource. Um, I mean, there's so many organizations. Human rights campaign. I find them a little problematic sometimes, but they have also done plenty of good work too. Um, they have a history, a debatable history on some of their trans issues. That's the only, only reason I hesitate with them, mm-hmm. but they still do plenty of great work and they are at least, um, starting to be more inclusive when it comes to trans and gender nonconforming folks. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're just, the internet is a fantastic resource now. There's so many organizations, um, you know, and if you yourself are, trying to come out of the closet again internet's a great resource um and find like-minded people and uh you know there's yeah i think i guess that's pretty much (laughs) all i have to say because there there are just too many organizations not too many there never can be but there are just so many good ones to mention yeah um aclu they do their share with um, the LGBTQ community as well. Um, but I'm, sh- I'm sure that you guys have in your city as well, but uh, here in Omaha, there's actually a rainbow outreach uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender uh, center. It's like an organization, and it's it's located very, very close to downtown in Omaha where it's, it's there for support. And uh, I think it as well, but... I'm not 100% sure on that. I just know that it exists. And so I'm, I'm sure there's also community outreach centers like that, hopefully in every city. If there aren't, uh, maybe look on, into getting one of those started. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, and it's like like we said earlier, I mean, all I really did was just did a quick Google search for uh, PFLAG Omaha and pulled up a wealth of resources, more so than I ever thought was available here in my own city. And uh just seeing all of this just made me like just very heartwarming knowing that it's there yeah and a lot of cities do actually have like a you know a a gay community center um i know we have a a massive one here in new york but um you know and they'll have sometimes they'll have different you know mixers or different like okay organizing around whatever political issue or support groups if um for various different issues, uh, like if you've just come out or have lost a partner or uh, HIV positive, whatever. So yeah, that's all, those are always good um, resources as well. Thanks for for having this talk, which is you know I think I already said sometimes it's a little tough to be honest with ourselves and shoot from the hip, <laughs> or uh, you know just be honest with ourselves and admit how we think. And as we've seen, there's there's a lot of things you can do if you want to be more involved in uh, equal rights or human rights or human rights or equal rights. I'm not sure they both make sense to me. I flipped a coin and Vanessa, you need to tell me and everybody listening about your your show. That is, like I said, it's just 
picking <laughs> up steam. I, I, it's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um. So my new podcast is the VD Clinic, um, that I do with David Anders Jr. from uh, Devour the Podcast. We talk movies and books. Um, with some sort of theme we pull out of our ass. Uh, <laughs> there's not like real consistent. It's always one genre or will surprise you. Um, you can find us on social media on Twitter at VD Clinic Pod. And we are also, you can email us uh, suggestions, questions at VD Clinic Pod at gmail.com. Great. Found where many podcasts can be found. As the yes. Hellman guy say, Google it, you bastages. Is that them? Um, I. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we're going to be in the Legion feed. Hey. I was I almost going to joke talk, about that I think already David, happening. I think David talked Bo into that, you know. <laughs> I think 80% of my shows is uh, someone from the Legion <laughs> network. Court, please tell us about your show. Oh, Cinema PsyOps weekly podcast where I torture my co-host by making him watch films from... Not only my youth, but also the youth of several guests that caused cinematic trauma on us. And to supplement that, we are also bringing up his horror IQ by forcing him to watch movies that have been deemed something that every horror fan should have seen by now. Uh, that's kind of a bi-weekly schedule where we do one one week and one the other. Both Darren and Vanessa have been guests and will be again in the future. You can find us on Legion Podcast. We are legionpodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops we're in itunes we're in stitcher we're in google play it's easy to find and as the guys from helming have said just google it you bastards cinema psyops awesome thanks thanks guys or folks i i know probably <laughs> calling everybody guys is in some way not cool to say anymore um <clears throat> thanks well, vanessa uh, thanks court technically <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank myself, Court, and Vanessa for uh, way to, taking... way to pull that out for saying thanks, guys. Nice, nice. <laughs> the broadcasters of your area have developed this system to keep you informed in the event of an emergency. This concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system. <laughs> <laughs>